I've selected two poems to begin our conversations today. The first is entitled, The Passionate Shepherd to His Love, written by Christopher Marlowe in 1599. He writes in part, Come live with me and be my love, and we will all the pleasures prove that valleys, groves, hills, and fields, woods, or steppy mountains yield. And we will sit upon the rocks, seeing shepherds feed their flocks by shallow rivers, to whose falls melodious birds sing madrigals. And I will make thee beds of roses and a thousand fragrant posies. And if these pleasures thee may move, come live with me and be my love. The second poem was written just one year later in response to Marlowe's poem by Sir Walter Raleigh. It's entitled, The Nymph's Reply to the Shepherd. If all the world and love were young, and truth in every shepherd's tongue, these pretty pleasures might me move to live with thee and be thy love. But time drives flocks from field to fold, when rivers rage and rocks grow cold. The flowers do fade, and wanton fields to wayward winter reckoning yields. Thy gown, thy shoes, thy beds of roses, thy cap, thy kirtle, and thy posies soon break, soon wither, soon forgotten, in folly ripe, in reason rotten. But could youth last and love still breed, had joys no date, nor age nor need, then these delights my mind might move to live with thee and be thy love. If. The shepherd and the nymph, echoing their enchantment and passion across the ages, from the Song of Songs in the Hebrew Bible, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. He brought me to his banqueting table, his banner over me is love. To the twangy lyrics of country music. The twangy lyrics of country music. My remarks today apply whether you've been in a committed relationship for many decades, or you've been through a divorce, or you may be a young adult venturing into this swamp for the first time. I hope you'll consider these remarks as a lens through which to examine any relationship, any relationship that matters to you. Those that you have made a formal commitment to, or those that may not yet be at that level of commitment. No matter. My question is this. Given our differences, including some that may seem to threaten our relational lives, how might we deal with the inevitable conflicts and impasses? A cartoon shows two middle-aged women in a formal living room 
in the midst of conversation, having tea and snacks perhaps. And over in the corner, there's a scowling elderly man who is slouching down in an easy chair and glowering at the TV. A typical curmudgeon. And one of the women says to her friend, Harold doesn't have any erogenous zones and he doesn't think anyone else should either. (laughs) Thankfully, folks, sometimes recognize love's foibles with a sense of humor. Consider these personal want ads in an Israeli newspaper. From individuals searching for the perfect mate. I am a sensitive Jewish prince whom you can open your heart to. Share your innermost thoughts and deepest secrets. Confide in me. I will understand your insecurities. No fatties, please. Attractive Jewish woman, 35-plus college graduate, seeks a successful Jewish prince charming to get me out of my parents' house. (laughs) Jewish male, 34, very successful, smart, independent, self-made. Looking for a girl whose father will hire me. (laughs) Female graduate student. Studying Kabbalah, Zohar, and exorcism of Dibbuk's. Seeking a minch. No weirdos, please. (laughs) Divorced Jewish man seeks a partner to attend shul with. Light Shabbos candles, celebrate the holidays, build sukkah together, attend brises and bar mitzvahs. Religion not important. Israeli professor 41, with 18 years of teaching in my behind, looking for American-born woman to speak English very good. (laughs) Staunch Jewish feminist wears tzitzis, seeking a male who will accept my independence, although you probably will not. Oh, just forget it. (laughs) Been there? Couch potato latke in search of just the right applesauce. Let's try it for eight days. Who knows? <laughs> you know, such humor can often be in short supply because in matters of the heart, much is at stake. The UU poet and songwriter Rick Maston writes... I have noticed that men somewhere around 40 tended to come in from the field with a sigh and, removing their coat in the hall, call into the kitchen. You were right, Grace. It ain't out there, just like you always said. And she, with the children gone at last, breathless, puts her hat on her head. The hell it ain't, she said. Coming and going, they pass in the doorway. Of all the human comedies and tragedies, love compels the human heart as poignantly as any other. 
Love may seem like a bed of roses, it's also a battlefield. A husband and wife visit a marriage counselor after 15 years of marriage. The wife very soon goes into a tirade listing for the marriage counselor every problem that the couple has had in the past 15 years. Finally, after almost two hours, the counselor gets up, walks around his desk, embraces the wife, and kisses her passionately. She is stunned into silence. She is dazed. The counselor turns to the husband and says decisively to him, this is what your wife needs at least three times a week. You understand? Can you do this? The husband thinks a moment and he replies, well, I suppose I could drop her off here Monday and Wednesday, but Friday I go fishing. <laughs> It's a curious irony. The pulp romances fill the bookstores. Meanwhile, two aisles over are the self-esteem books. What a setup. Step one, hook folks on pie-in-the-sky fantasies. And step two, when fantasy fades and they wake up next to a flawed human being. Sell them some self-esteem books. It's sort of like the Pentagon's two-pronged strategy of selling fighter jets to the Israelis and then anti-aircraft guns to the Egyptians. My gosh, how the money rolls in. Today we speak of love in any committed relationship, including marriage, and my focus is going to be on what happens after the starry-eyed enchantment fades and the struggles of getting along are front and center. Of all powers in this world, love is the most powerful and the most powerless. It is the most powerful because it can conquer that final stronghold which is the human heart. And it is the most powerless because it can do nothing except by consent. And so let's consider what happens when love is not idealized as some kind of perfection, but emerges in the awkward, messy, down-to-earth struggles of living. Love, I would say, is, number one, it's the willed intent of the heart. It doesn't just show up. It's not primarily a feeling or emotion. It is a willed intention. It doesn't just happen. It's very hard work. It requires discipline. And opening our hearts again and again to someone with whom you may be angry... If ours were an ideal world, each of us would have been generously loved by our parents and by our friends, who in turn were loved by their parents and by their friends, and so forth ad infinitum. We would feel so much love that we would be spontaneously open-hearted, if only 
but such an ideal seems rare. We've all been experienced, we have all experienced being loved too little or too late or in self-serving ways or in distorted ways. And thus, in seeking companionship with another, we may be limping along. We may be limping along paths full of potholes, a war zone. The words, love your neighbor, aren't about a warm, fuzzy emotion. Love your neighbor means that our own peace and happiness can never be complete until we find ways of sharing it with those who may have very little happiness and very little peace. We are called not to create warm sentimentality. That, that's not it. We are called to bring light to dark places, to fearful places. We are called to bring hope to those feeling in danger and despair and new life to those who might awaken in their own tombs of deadness. Spiritual deadness, I mean. So love is first a radical, a willed intention of the heart. It's anything but cheap sentimentality. Second, love is the shaping of character. The love of which I speak will reshape the character of those whom it touches. Whenever I meet with couples who've invited me to prepare and lead uh, their marriage ceremony or ceremony of commitment, I always schedule two or three conferences. We consider ways in which the ceremony can reflect far more than sentimentality. I indicate that in their decision to get married, they have chosen a person who will significantly reshape their character. And I get wide-eyed, dropped jaws. What do you mean, reshape me? I say they should anticipate that their partner will challenge some habits that they have grown accustomed to. Moreover, their partner will affirm and strengthen qualities that they may have taken for granted or may not have cultivated or may be reluctant to claim. So it's both. This reshaping happens from both directions. And that suggestion on my part surprises some couples. The romantic ideal says that we are drawn to people who reinforce our virtues and our vices. <clears throat> but it gets complicated because in every truly engaging relationship, we can anticipate a lot of reshaping Notice I use the word shaping. I didn't say chiseling or carving or some other word that is forceful or coercive or manipulative. It's more like the work of a magnet in creating a field which subtly might realign at a distance. The functioning of another. It is not coercive. It is not you shall, you should, you must. No, this is not a coercive kind of reshaping. It also 
doesn't happen through the kind of indifference of, I do my thing and you do your thing. Remember that phrase from three decades ago? It's not indifference either. Shaping happens through sustained but subtle influence. And it requires consent. Love is the most powerless force in the world because it can do nothing but by consent. One of the couple may say to me, significantly reshape my character. I thought that marriage is about finding someone to accept me as I am. Someone who provides me with a strong comfort zone. What's this about reshaping me? And what did you think love would be like? A summer day, flowers in every field, with their soft beaks and their pastel shoulders. In one room after another, the lovers meet, quarrel, sicken, break apart, cry. One or two may leap from windows, most simply lean, exhausted, their arms on the sill, they have done all that they could. The golden eagle that lives not far from here has perhaps a thousand tiny feathers. Tiny feathers flowing from the back of its head, each one shaped like a small but perfect spear. I have come to the conclusion, she said, that when we fall in love, we really fall in love with ourselves. That we choose particular people because they provide the particular mirrors, the particular mirrors in which we wish to see. And when did you discover this surprising bit of knowledge, he asked. After I had broken a few very fine mirrors, she said, In my counseling with couples, there's one thing I have not done, and yet I just might give it a try. What I might try is to suggest to them, after I've counseled with you and prepared and led your ceremony, I'd like to meet with you six months later for a free check-in visit. It will last two hours. There's no homework other than life itself. It's going to be a free consultation in six months. I want to schedule it with you right now. And then six months later, when the couple arrives, I would give them each something to scribble on and a pencil, and I would ask them to consider six questions. I would ask them to just silently make some notes, and then I would ask them to share aloud with each other their responses, and, and I would simply sit and listen and not say a word. What would my six questions be for this six-month check-in? Question one, how has being married changed the way in which you relate to each other? Question two, how has your partner encouraged and supported you when something is troubling you? Question three, 
How well do you and your partner discuss items of common concern and then share your problem-solving processes with each other? Question four, are you finding that your partner welcomes and encourages your wishes to take on new activities, vocational challenges, or other ways of growing and testing your leading edge? Question five, are you satisfied with the way your partner expresses affection and responds to your feelings of sorrow, love, and anger? And question six, are you satisfied with the way you and your partner share your time together? Those would be my six questions. The couple would do all the work. I would say little except to encourage their interaction and their reappreciation of each other. So far, I haven't asked for such a six-month check-in with newlyweds and couples I've worked with. And, and I kind of wonder now how such a six-month pulse-taking might unfold, or even if they would show up. I might give it a go. We'll see. Well, let's fast forward the clock. Imagine that now the couple has been together six years, or 16, or 60, or 70. I have heard of people's people with 60 plus, 70 plus anniversaries. Suppose we are in the 60 to 70 anniversary range. My colleague, Reverend John Corrado, who many of you may know from his service at the church elsewhere in Michigan, John Corrado writes, I saw two lovers the other day. He was in his 70s and she about the same. They were not in lover's lane, but in a hospital cafeteria. They caught my eye and I watched their lovemaking. He set his tray down and he walked to where she had set hers down. Then slowly and gently and with a slight shaking in his hands, he pulled out the chair she was about to sit in. She sat and then she followed him with her eyes as he retrieved his tray and walked to a place across from her. As he sat his tray down, she gently placed a steadying hand on his. And there they were, truly lovely lovers, talking together softly as they shared their meals. Their meals. They weren't clutching or grabbing. They weren't billing or cooing or kissing. Their looks and gestures weren't the kind that might be seen on movie posters. Singles ads that speak of moonlit walks by a lake hardly touched the surface of what I saw that day. Their tenderness was much more seasoned, much more real. The moment spoke of years and a depth which more visceral passion cannot know. Tears came to me, and I turned away as any decent person should when in the presence of those making love. End of quote. John Corrado. My friends, enduring love just cannot be grounded 
merely in infatuation. It's grounded in humility, in humor, in forgiveness. Judith Bjors describes the difference between infatuation on the one hand and enduring love on the other. Infatuation is when you think that he's as sexy as Robert Redford, as smart as Henry Kissinger, as noble as Ralph Nader, as funny as Woody Allen, and as athletic as Jimmy Connors. But love is when you finally realize that he is as sexy as Woody Allen, as smart as Jimmy Connors, as funny as Ralph Nader, as athletic as Henry Kissinger, and nothing like Robert Redford in any way, and yet you love him anyway. In the play, A Raisin in the Sun, the father has died and the family is depending on $10,000 from the father's life insurance policy. The mother gives the money to the son to put in the bank, but instead he gives it to a friend to invest in a liquor store, and the guy skips town with the money. After a heated argument with her mother, the daughter screams, You saw what he did? Wasn't it you who taught me to despise any man who would do that? And the mother answers, yes, I taught you that. Me and your daddy taught you that. But I taught you something else too. I taught you to love him. The daughter screams, love him? There's nothing left to love. And then the mother speaks these memorable lines. There is always something left to love. If you ain't learned that, you ain't learned nothing. Have you cried for that boy today? I don't mean for yourself and the family because of all the lost money. I mean, have you cried for him, for what he's been through and what it did to him? Child, when do you think is the time to love somebody the most? Is it when they done good and when they made things easy for everybody? Well, then you ain't learned nothing, because that isn't the time at all. It's when he's at his lowest and can't believe in himself, because the world done whipped him so. When you start measuring somebody, measure him right, child. Measure him right. Make sure that you have taken into account all those hills and valleys that he come through before he got to wherever he is. To say that love is God is romantic idealism. To say that God is love, that is either the last straw or maybe the ultimate truth. <laughs>